Good evening, everyone. I'm Kit Mitchell. Um, I was chair of the historical group of this society for six years, and I now edit the Journal of Aeronautical History. It's a great pleasure to welcome you all to tonight's lecture on aviation and the Antarctic. It gives me great pleasure to introduce Dr. Charles Swithenbank, who's a glaciologist who's been involved in polar research for 60 years, has spent more than 20 field seasons and three winters in the polar regions. His connection with the Scott Polar Research Institute goes back to 1949, when he became a member of a Norwegian-British-Swedish Antarctic expedition. He was employed by the expedition and then by the Polar Research Institute until 1959, after which he spent four years at the University of Michigan at Ann Arbor, and then from 1963 to 86, he was at the Polar Research Institute and the British Antarctic Survey as chief glaciologist and then as head of Earth Sciences Division. He's an emeritus associate of the Scott Polar Research Institute. Since retiring, he's been involved in the interpretation of satellite images of Antarctica, mapping and the development of ice runways for transport aircraft. He's brought, he's written four books and he's brought one copy of each along. They're on the front of the stage and he said that he doesn't want to carry them back to Cambridge. <laughs> so you're invited to bid for them and I'm sure he'll sign them for you. Um, I know nobody better to talk to us about aviation in the Antarctic and invite Charles to uh, talk to us now. Thank you very much, Chairman. Well, it's a pleasure and a privilege to uh, come here. And uh, my connection with aviation was simply that I began by traveling on the surface. And uh, when we came to crevassed areas, of which I was terrified, I always prayed for a very small aircraft to go up and see where they were and how to get through them. But uh, I never had it. Um, they uh, didn't... Uh, provide one. So I've never actually fallen down, but I try to take precautions not to fall down. Um, this title says Aviation in the Antarctic. In fact, I'm bipolar. Uh, well, if if you meet a doctor and say bipolar, he says, well, you, you're not in good health. But what we mean is that I work in the Arctic and the Antarctic. Um, and uh, have done, and uh, don't mind where I work. So I think the uh, some of the um, slides I'm going to show you essentially uh, amount to showing what a pretty useless schoolboy can do in life if he's not um, too uh, too fussy about what he does. Uh, in other words, I'm an odd job man, but I've enjoyed being an odd job man. Um, so that's the title I uh, prefer to uh, give. 
uh, I'm not all polar. On the right, that is me with a python around my neck. I was born in Burma and lived there for seven years. Um, and then in 1949, joined the Norwegian-British-Swedish expedition. And these are our tracks. I was on the one going across the Atlantic uh, to uh, um, Curacao, uh, which was a whale factory ship, enormous whale factory ship. We had 60 dogs on board. And the reason for hitchhiking on the whale factory ship was that we had the kitchen scraps from 400 crew. And as soon as we started whaling, we had unlimited whale meat, which dogs much appreciated. But the other members of the expedition came down via Cape Town. Um, and uh, the problem with the Antarctic in an unexplored area, and this certainly was unexplored, is that you're faced with this, a hundred feet high cliff of ice. You can see the annual layers of snow accumulated, but that's what we call an ice shelf. And that's 98, 9% of the coastline of Antarctica. So how do you get up there uh, from small ship? Uh, well, uh, that's what it looks like from the air. Uh, it's just hundreds of miles. We sailed along hundreds of miles trying to find it a place to land. But luckily, we had a pair of people from the Royal Air Force uh, with a couple of Osters. Um, and they were able to um, cruise along the coast till they came to a low place where the ship could come alongside and uh, unload. They did many hundreds of miles going along. Um, and uh, this is the key ice port that uh, we uh, they found with our ship up against it. And the small things on the right are the dogs penned out. And the dogs had mostly forgotten uh, how to drink um, because we'd given them water in the ship. And they went absolutely wild and like mad dogs. And they were lashing out at everything until they lashed out at the snow and then started licking their lips and saying, no, which is interesting. And from then on, we never gave them any water at all. Um, there's the ship unloading. They came to us three times, uh, once after the first year and once after the second to take us home. Uh, we're very lucky to have uh, two uh, Air Force officers um, and two Osters on skis and wheels and floats, whichever you choose. Um, if any of you know what became of these two aviators later in life, I'd be very keen if you would tell me afterwards, because I haven't heard from them for a long time. But uh, they did a gallant job and did some exploring in inland and found some new mountains. This was a pretty much unexplored area of the Antarctic. We did have company there, um, and uh, they were 500 yards away when they saw us, and they all stood up and started running towards us. And then they travel faster on their bellies. You, you and I wouldn't, but they do. Until they came close to us and then stood up and were obviously saying to themselves, what are these penguins doing standing on planks? Two planks. There we were about a mile inland. And uh, that is our base that we set up. 
the cook that we'd signed on uh, found out that this ice was all floating and therefore could disappear out to sea at any moment. He probably resigned on the spot and said he's going home in the ship. Um, luckily, the ship's cook said he would stay for the winter and uh, cook for us. Uh, three days old, we transported all this best part of 400 tons up from the um, coast in Weasels, which is a Second World War uh, machine that you can see there. Tow about two tons, two tons. That's the main fuel supply. This is the uh, food supply. We took th three years of food because the ship might not have come back after two years. And the pack ice, we had to go through the pack ice. And you can't always do that. And so we had th three years, which was very nice. And uh, we lived in tents when we were traveling inland, hundreds of miles traveling inland. And uh, that's all we had to go by. And the little hand-powered radio you can see outside the tent uh, is all we had to communicate with the, uh, our base. And that was entirely on Morse. Uh, but I'd been in the Navy and I could tap out reasonable messages in Morse. And traveling inland, it was into the unknown. We were pulling two tons about behind, a lot of it being dog food because we were intending to make an advance base and then radiate out from that with dogs for what we were doing. Uh, I was a glaciologist and we were measuring ice thickness uh, by seismic sounding, how much snow there was, how fast the ice was moving. And geologists, well, they just look at rock, as you know. And the, the stuff sitting on top of the sledge is uh, stockfish, dry dogfish, which uh, uh, we fed the dogs, and they were willing to consume it because they were otherwise starving. We didn't hydrate it or anything for them. Um, after the first year, we had a frightful accident. I was away inland when... Uh, Four people drove over the edge of the ice into the sea. The weasel immediately sank. Um, three of them immediately drowned because they couldn't swim. One of them swam to the nearest ice flow and luckily had a sheath knife in his belt because you'd never be able to climb out onto an ice flow just by clawing, clawing it. So he took out his knife, stuck it in the ice and pulled himself out. He survived after 13 hours of walking around in circles to keep warm. Another event, geologists chip away at rocks. This is their problem. And this one chipped away at a rock and it got him in the eye. And uh, he couldn't see in that eye. And uh, of course the doctor had never seen anything like this before. So he... I sent a message back to an eye surgeon in Sweden. He was Swedish uh, and uh, said, what do I do? And the surgeon radioed back, if you don't take out that damaged eye, infection could go back to the optic nerve, make him blind in both eyes. So there's a necessity. He'd never even seen an eye operation, but uh, he had to do it. And he had no trained assistants. All those people are totally untrained. Um, and uh, 
That's a radio operator monitoring reflexes. The doctor in the wound, chief geologist, chief glaciologist, and um, professional photographer um, uh, was anaesthetist. Uh, and uh, the operation took three hours, but was totally successful. And then uh, after a year, we went inland measuring ice thicknesses. Now, this was very exciting. We could only measure them by seismic sounding every 30 miles. And between these 30 miles, we didn't know what happened. But we found ice 2,000 or 2,500 meters thick. Well, this is far more than we expected or anyone else expected. Um, so it was very exciting. And uh, we got 400 miles inland before we ran out of uh, fuel and so on, had to come back. And uh, we were up nearly 3,000 meters above sea level. This is before the International Geophysical Year when there were many parties uh, taking vehicles inland and seismic sounding. That's me on the right. We didn't have any spare water for washing your face, of course, for months on end. Uh, but we cooked inside this caboose, we called it, uh, which was uh, uh, just a sledge with a canvas roof. And that's our farther south, which was 74 degrees south. And, uh, um, and uh, camera timers hadn't been invented in those days. So uh, one man, namely me, is pulling the string to fire the camera. And we had a few dogs in case both the machines broke down. And uh, so they were there to help us get home 400 miles on our skis. Okay, we kept one uh, weasel going. After we'd been there two years, uh, everything was absolutely snowed under. All you've got showing there are air intakes and exhaust pipes. In the background, the sea with icebergs drifting by. Uh, this is something you must judge because I, I can't. <laughs> um, uh, I... I I would vigorously deny. deny. Uh, after this expedition, I wrote up the results for an Oxford doctorate and then wanted to stay in the polar regions because it had been fun, sheer fun, and asked the Canadians if they needed anybody. Uh, and they said, yes, we want you to go to the Northwest Passage and study the distribution of pack ice in the Northwest Passage. And I said, oh, I, I'm the man, and uh, went over to Ottawa and they said, right, you must go through Arctic ice because it might be different from Antarctic ice. In fact, it's not really. But I, <laughs> I, I, I said, I'm happy to have a cruise in a Canadian ice. It was, in fact, the first Canadian polar icebreaker uh, designed for really heavy ice. Um, and they said, you're a glaciologist. Well, you are doing ice reconnaissance. You are going out ahead of the ship sketching the ice distribution and radioing back where the ship was to go. Well, this again was enormous fun. I don't think I'd ever flown in a helicopter before, but I don't complain about these things. Uh, after four years doing this, I've got a um, ratchet on because I've only been given an hour. Um, I went to work for the Americans in the Antarctic, and this is their largest base holds up to 2,000 people in the summer. And it is uh, 
wonderful place, highest standard of living, highest standard of food anywhere in the Antarctic. And uh, we have uh, one of the former helicopter pilots uh, sitting in the front row here, so I will not elaborate on the aviation aspect. You can ask him afterwards. Uh, whiteout. Now, I must tell you something about whiteout because everybody thinks they know about whiteout. It's defined as multiple reflection between snow surface and an overcast cloud such that there are no shadows on the surface. There have been many people crashed and many people killed through not taking note of that. I've always tried to teach people um, endlessly, but you can't believe it until you see it. Uh, and there's two helicopters. Uh, looks like at least one of them has crashed. Um, and uh, on our first expedition, uh, this very experienced pilot was uh, cruising around. Uh, the, our meteorologist, who was in the right-hand seat, saw him bringing the wing down to the surface because there's nothing he could do because the pilot couldn't see it. The surface was there, and that was the result. That was white out. Luckily, they both survived. Um, this is uh, a super constellation on the runway at McMurdin, the main American base. And uh, there's only one place where they were able to land wheeled aircraft, flying from New Zealand, land wheeled aircraft. And uh, therefore, if it was socked in zero, zero when you got there, what, what do you do? Well, I'll come to that later. I, I had ideas. I witnessed this. Uh, helicopter took off as helicopters do, tilted forward and uh, got up his speed and went straight into the snow and plowed a hundred yard long furrow with his wheels, white out. Um, British Antarctic Survey have had white out crashes. Um, and this is Twin Otter. He thought he was landing on level snow, but you can see he's not. Um, and that's what white out does to you. A competent pilot, but whiteout couldn't see the slope of the surface. Ten degrees, bang, smashed up everything. We rescued the en engines afterwards, and uh, nobody was killed. Five people on board, but uh, there you see, experienced pilots uh, still don't know about it. And uh, this a New Zealand flight from New Zealand with 257 people on board, all of them killed outright. Um, there were inquiries and books written about it for years afterwards and litigation going on. But in my view, it was a whiteout accident that uh, they, uh, they had snow ahead of them with no horizon. And uh, in fact, one of the later... And New Zealand pilots who did these flights said he thought whiteout was just fog or something like that. Well, there you have it, condemned themselves in their own words. Um, and uh, it was a terrible tragedy. Um, um, the Americans were very messy, uh, leaving rubbish wherever it uh, fell, stopped, sunken ship. And it was unfortunate because uh, Captain Scott's first uh, expedition hut is here. And uh, it's surrounded by dead bulldozers and sunken ship. 
And all this continued until Greenpeace one day came in in their own ship, took their own photographs, splashed them on the front page of the world's newspapers, and there was hell to pay. Uh, they cleaned up the place. All that was cleaned up afterwards. The uh, first job I had in the Antarctic was to cross the Ross Ice Shelf 500 miles from um, east to west. And uh, this is the only place where you can cross the international date line by driving a vehicle rather than sailing. Um, and so we did. And naturally, it was marked on these marker drums that this side is today and that side is tomorrow. <laughs> and there were four of us, uh, and that was quite fun. People had been there before and labeled the thing. I was very amazed and shocked. We needed spare parts. I radioed in. Again, we, I was still on Morse key in the 60s and said we needed spare parts. And uh, Otto flew out from McMurdo, chap jumped out, said, uh, I'm squadron leader, word number of the Royal Air Force. And I thought, hey, I thought I was working with the Americans. No, he said, we do exchanges uh, to help training. And he brought the spare part we needed and we carried on. Um, I went home from the Antarctic in the USS Atka icebreaker. We were the latest ship ever to leave McMurdo, and the ice was pretty fearsome then. We went back to New Zealand, but if we'd stayed much longer, we might have frozen in for the winter, which wouldn't have been a good thing at all. Um, now, I was planning to work on the Ross Ice Shelf, which is the world's largest ice shelf, which is floating ice uh, up to a thousand meters thick, thinner near the front, a thousand meters further back, and it's all floating, going up and down on the tide. But there are crevasses, and I asked for a reconnaissance flight. Um, they were very generous in those days. Uh, I said, I want to fly around. They gave me a nine-hour flight in this uh, Neptune, which has two two piston and two pure jet engines. There's the pure jet engine and two piston engines. And uh, unfortunately, that meant you had to have two different kinds of fuel. And the bomb, bomb bay had... Uh, one of them, I forget which. But um, I had a wonderful flight round, and they handed me a TV dinner. I was sitting in the transparent nodes cone. It was paradise for uh, anyone who appreciates scenery, the grandest scenery in the Antarctic. Well, um, a week after that, that aircraft came to grief with one of my party in it, the uh, name of Edward Thiel, he said, Charles, do you mind if I go away for a weekend? This is a unique opportunity of doing a magnetometer run across the Antarctic, uh, which uh, they had. And I said, no, of course, it's well worthwhile that this was all exploring. I said, I'll see you back in a week. Never saw him again. Um, so there have been problems. But luckily, there were still unnamed mountain ranges around in those days. And uh, so we got this mountain range named after him, Edward Thiel, Thiel, Thiel Mountain Range. Um, I did three summer seasons uh, with the Americans and said where I wanted to go. And they said, all right, pile in your equipment. I had little um, uh, snow scooters, uh, skidoos, and piled them into these ancient Dakotas on skis. 
and uh, took off and they went where I wanted. Uh, a tremendous privilege because I was a foreigner after all, um, but I had 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 experience. Now, they put rockets on the underside of their airplane, or they did in those days to help you get off quick, to reduce the bumping on Sestrugi. And so when they get up reasonable flying speed, pilot presses a button on the yoke and six rockets go off and lift you off the ground. And uh, it's quite effective, but terrifying for the person sitting inboard of these rockets if you hadn't warned him about it. He think, <laughs> thinks the end of the world has come. They did play that trick on me the first time, and I played it on other people afterwards. Um, in order to avoid crevasses, just before I got there, three people had fallen down a crevasse, and uh, one of them was killed, and two of them were maimed. And uh, so I didn't appreciate uh, the chance of doing that. I was going to travel further on this ice shelf than anybody in history. So I imported these little vehicles, and uh, they might fall down a crevasse. So we spread out the load uh, on two sledges, um, a ton altogether, half a ton on each sledge, and uh, uh, a sledge meter to measure the distance, ordinary bicycle meter, and a World War II Spitfire or Hurricane compass there. So he, while steering this by remote control, could look at the compass so we could carry on in fog. Uh, and if the thing did go down a crevasse, you'd let go of the ropes. But then you would have a problem that all your worldly goods have disappeared down the crevasse. Um, so we, we thought of that, and one of us had an alpine rope, crampons, and ice axe, and we would have gone down and handed up the boxes one by one. So luckily this never happened. Um, Amundsen, the Norwegian who was first at the South Pole, left only one little memento, uh, a little can, pile of rocks, with five, five gallons of uh, kerosene, paraffin in it, uh, which he didn't need because he was traveling home so fast. But it was still there, still intact, solid shut, and if I'd been in an emergency, I wouldn't have hesitated to use it. But it's still there today. Um, we did have helicopter help, and this was the first time we had U.S. Army helicopter help. They used to tease the U.S. Navy helicopter pilots because the air crew in the U.S. Navy helicopter pilots was three, and uh, in the Army helicopter it was one. Um, and uh, so I sat in the co-pilot seat, and he took me wherever I wanted to go, which was a number of places to do landings to measure strength of gravity. Finished with the Antarctic, then I got a telephone call from BP in the city saying, would I go on an icebreaker through the Northwest Passage? And I said, why? And they said, because we don't have anybody who knows anything about pack ice, and we want to know whether it's easy or difficult or what. Well, this is still today the largest ship ever to have gone into ice. We, were, we filled the cargo tanks with seawater to give us more momentum, and we were a displacement tonnage of 153,000 tons. Um, and uh, they got through both ways, uh, but occasionally jammed, and we had to back off and uh, have another charge. 
um, tankers are wide. Um, and that's why you needed... They had strengthened the bows. In fact, the whole bow was a brand new bow, which they tacked on to the uh, other parts which they had eye strengthened. But this was uh, tremendously solid. I was down there when we were ice breaking. It was just like an artillery barrage uh, breaking ice. And then, yes, I was sitting at my desk in Cambridge and telephone call came um, saying, would I talk to the first lieutenant of HMS Dreadnought, which was Britain's first nuclear submarine? I said, of course. And so he came and we spent three hours together talking about pack ice. They were worried about whether they could come up through it. And at the end of three hours, he just walked outside the door and he said, you wouldn't like to come with us, would you? Well, it took a microsecond to get a response to that. <laughs> and uh, I did. And uh, that's at the North Pole. Um, we were walking. The ice wasn't very thick there, but we, you can see we lifted some bit up on the conning tower. And uh, it was the first time the uh, Royal Navy had been under ice, and certainly the first time they'd been to the North Pole. It was tremendous fun. Um, and you should recognize two people in that photo. Uh, one of them is uh, here. <laughs> and the other is here. And uh, the Royal Navy doesn't starve, even at the North Pole, as you can see. And there was plenty of lubrication as well as very good food. So I, was, I had served in the Royal Navy, so I knew you had to wear a white shirt in the wardrobe. So I did. Um, then... 1964, um, I wanted to learn Russian. And the easiest way to learn Russian was to go with the Russians to the Antarctic. And we were having a lot of literature in Russian in my subject, which we were ignoring, which I thought was a great crime for a scientist to ignore. And um, so I volunteered. It took five years of negotiations to get there, because this is the Soviet Union and all and any Westerner was a spy, automatically. Um, and uh, But eventually they caved in, and uh, I went down. I was the only foreigner. Um, and here we are with a ship up against three feet of ice with this recognizably DC-3 uh, on the ice. They trusted the three feet of ice. And they said, uh, this is actually not an American. It's built in the Soviet Union. And this was part of Lee Sland. The Douglas aircraft gave them complete plans to build uh, Dakotas in the Soviet Union. And they did. And this is one of the Soviet-built Dakotas. <coughs> perfectly, perfectly good. I lived at this station um, for a year. I lived in that hut with a geophysicist and uh, this one we called the Pentagon because it's where the station leader lived and then the dining room generator shed and had great fun but it was annoying for me because I was used to traveling in the Antarctic and these people didn't travel and the one time I encouraged them to go travel, traveling in one of the vehicles which weighed 25 tons they drove over crevasses without realizing they were doing it. I promptly asked to get out. Um, <laughs> and uh, I, came, I came back to base on my ski, skis. 
But they're very nice people. That was my roommate, seismologist. Uh, he, he had some English. He was the only one who spoke any English at all. Very nice chap. I suspect he joined the KGB afterwards because I never heard from him again. Um, that's uh, playing table tennis with uh, me on the right. And I'm sure a lot of you can, can uh, read this uh, sign up here. Who's going to tell me what it says? <coughs> welcome. It says welcome. And here's Nikita Khrushchev on the wall. He came down halfway through the year because he was deposed. And immediately you're deposed when you're head of state in Russia. Your picture comes off the wall everywhere over the whole country. They have the highest station and the coldest station in the Antarctic. And I've had it for many years. Um, and... Uh, uh, they asked if I'd like to go for a day trip, and I said yes. Uh, this was midsummer. The air temperature was minus 44, um, and uh, uh, there was only one ton of cargo uh, going in in this uh, illusion. But I spent 24 hours there with a headache, of course, having gone up to 12,500 straight away from sea level. But still, I was able to uh, walk around and ask them what they were doing. Um, that's the station. They had several foreigners there at the time, and they didn't have a British flag, but they had others. There was an American exchange scientist there. They had, there were Frenchmen there. This is in the middle of summer when you do have visitors. Notice that he's not wearing gloves. It was dead calm. Minus 40, but dead calm, and it's the wind which does you in. Um, tractors, uh, I said, these must be built on the chassis of tanks, and they said, oh, no, 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 these were built for the Antarctic. Uh, this one weighs 40 tons, uh, this one 25 tons, but they were, I saw that one towing 60 tons on three sledges. They were wonderful vehicles, uh, but they were made in a tank factory. Uh, taking off again, uh, they didn't have... Uh, rockets like the Americans, they never use them. And here you are with a normal uh, piston engine taking off, but they have a very long runway. And um, I was the only passenger going back. And after we'd uh, travelled a mile at full power, pilot turned around and said, get back, get back, <laughs> to the uh, engineer and the radio operator and me. And we very quickly ran to the back end of the aircraft, and that brought the nose ski off and eventually flew. <laughs> um, I then joined the British Antarctic Survey, which is still in Cambridge and going strong, but uh, of course uh, it was a come down to, uh, I'd never been in the QE2 actually, um, but uh, that was a ship I first went to the Antarctic uh, with the British. This is what we were flying at that uh, stage. Uh, i written new and old here because uh, we have dog teams and we have the aircraft on skis. And we were just for the first time trying to measure the thickness of the ice by radar, which was very exciting for people who'd traveled 30 miles and then done a single ice depth with seismic explosion and 30 miles another one. Didn't know what happened in, in between but here was the possibility of uh, continuously measuring ice thickness. So this was the first experimental use 
uh, in the uh, in the Antarctic. Uh, complete job, bodge job. Uh, antennas uh, clamped onto the strut there, um, but we uh, we had fun. Um, that's me on the right, and Bob Veer, Royal Air Force, in the middle, and uh, uh, David uh, struggling to. I'm getting old, um, and that was our air crew. And uh, taking off, this aircraft is now at the and the Havilland Museum just off the M25 in bits. And we are hoping that it's going to be restored because it'll be the only uh, single-engine otter in Britain. And it was an extremely useful aircraft, still flying in Arctic Canada today. Uh, we only had one. Uh, I was a sort of navigator. This is our instrument with... Uh, um, operator here, a bodge job because this is science, not not sales. Burgess uh, and and, uh, and uh, one I just told you they're both dead now. He's still going going strong. Well, on the way back home, I flew up through South America and, having worked with the Americans, visited the National Science Foundation, the chief scientist of the Antarctic program was an old friend, and uh, I showed him the film records of what we've been doing, 35-millimeter um, film, but it was virtually cross-section of the ice sheet, continuous. And for somebody who had been doing, like me earlier, one sounding every 30 miles, this is an absolute thrill. You can imagine how much of a thrill it was for us, too. Um, and he immediately said, Charles, will you come down next season, bring your gadget with you, and we'll give you a super constellation and a crew of 16, and you can fly anywhere, wherever you like, for a month. And I said, well, that sounds a nice idea. So. <laughs> that was the way collaboration was, and in many ways still is in the Antarctic. Uh, it's extremely uh, lucky. The Antarctic Treaty was uh, signed in 1960, and we all belong, and we help each other when we can. But the budget is... Uh, Colossal, especially the American one. Um, for a time, we had a Pilatus Porter, which I don't recommend because it's designed for taking skiers with broken legs off Swiss Alps. Um, but I wouldn't say there's much uh, more for it. But uh, we had it. It was the first turbine aircraft we'd ever had in the organization. Um, and it was very crowded inside. Uh, an extra drum of fuel to give us extra uh, distance. Skis in case we force landed. Uh, operator here. Batteries here. Uh, pilot up the front. I sat on the batteries here. And uh, this we called the placebo because if we ditched in sea uh, with a high-wing monoplane, whether we would ever have the remotest chance of deploying that, I don't know. So it was our placebo. Um, so the next season, you, uh, these people with the constellation were wonderful. They flew across to Cambridge just to show us what the airplane looked like. Uh, I suppose it was fun for them. Uh, it was fun for us too. Um, and then we all went down to Christchurch, New Zealand, and. Uh, 
strung our antennae under the tail. Well, of course, they were rather worried about pulling the tail off because they'd never had side stresses on this part of it before. And so they put in weak links, and we took off and flew, and the weak links broke and landed and put in stronger weak links. And we did that three times, and eventually uh, they survived. And uh, from here, uh, flew to the Antarctic. Um, we were spoiled. We were given uh, not only the aircraft, but uh, a hire car when we arrived. And uh, that's uh, my two colleagues. And we flew 94 hours in three weeks. Uh, and uh, wherever we told them go, it was one of us in the right hand seat. This isn't Adelaide, Ad, Adelaide that I uh, designed because I'd been a navigator for a minesweeper in the war and uh, that was a good way. And that was this pre-GS, pre-satellite, pre, uh, pre-inertial, pre-everything. Um, so we needed everything to help tell us where we were sounding. Uh, that's up front and uh, I sat in the right hand seat for 50 hours or so, and had to go once. Three cameras under the cabin floor, wonderful survey cameras, taking 20 by 20 centimeter photographs, continuous horizon to horizon for mapping. Wonderful. Most of the mapping by the Americans has been done with these cameras. Superb resolution uh, on, on film, and... Uh, I've got a lot of them in Cambridge if anybody wants to look at them. Um, we said, uh, I, they said, how long do you want? And I said, well, as long as you can fly. And they said, well, we'd better put 2,000 gallons in the cabin, uh, which gave us 15 hours to dry tanks. Well, we're not stupid, so we said 12 hours was enough uh, for uh, flying. But uh, and there was, they did everything we asked. Um, and that's the way collaboration still is in many ways in the Antarctic. It's unique in all the world, and no money changes hands. Uh, that's, uh, I took from the right-hand seat, fairly low flying over crevasses. And this is our first um, subglacial lake. How do we know it's a subglacial lake? All these are internal layers in the ice sheet, and normally the bottom is pretty rough. But when you get a dead flat piece like that, you say to yourself, that must be a lake, otherwise why, why would it be level? And we were right, but since this first one, more than 200 subglacial lakes have been discovered in the Antarctic. And the British Antarctic Survey is about to go and drill through one, which is the best part of 3,000 meters under the ice. And the Russians have already drilled through one, which is more than 4,000 meters thick, um, to see what's underneath, to see if there are any living things that have been isolated from the world uh, since the ice sheet formed. But uh, very interesting sedimentary. Those are sedimentary layers, just like, just like rock. Um, and the Russians, inadvertently, they didn't know it, they'd set up their base on a, the biggest subglacial lake in the whole of Antarctica. There's their station. And uh, here's the resolution of satellite pictures. That's the tractor tracks going back to the coast. Just tractor tracks. Um, and I landed there with the Russians. Um, 
Uh, it's very exciting science, and everybody is trying to follow in their footsteps. Um, after this season, I uh, retired and had to do other things, but they said, oh, we'll give you Hercules. Um, and uh, this is at the South Pole, that... Uh, uh, that dome, geodesic aluminum dome, and these uh, antenna put underneath, all by design of the Scott Pearl Research Institute in Cambridge, with no bill rendered. I mean, it must have been a million dollars or something. And I wondered why the pilot didn't get a sore left foot and so tried to keep it straight, but that's none of my business. And over several seasons, uh, our people flew many hundreds of hours measuring the thickness of ice. And this is an international uh, result of these cross-sections. The ice is much thicker than anybody dreamed it would be. There's an awful lot of ice there, uh, up to 4,000 4, meters of ice. And so this is an international effort uh, coordinated by the Scott Pearl Research Institute in, in Cambridge. But for glaciologists who had started by single seismic soundings, an absolute thrill. Uh, I then um, went uh, with the British Antarctic Survey, and uh, we had two twin otters at the time, and uh, I was in right hand seat, but of course my pilot couldn't see this. So he's peer peering very anxiously out of the left-hand side, make sure he keeps station on us. Um, there are very few airfields, and you have to make your own. And this one was made by two fit men in three days with shovels, shoveling off the tops of the sastrugi and throwing them to the side. And it was very successful. I flew off there several times with half a ton of rocks to the South Pole, and you say, well, why take rocks to the South Pole? Well, the answer is it was a collaborative international program, and that was the easiest way to get them, get them out of the Antarctic, because the Americans fly supplies into the Antarctic and go back empty. So they're very happy to carry our rocks. Um, then um, the uh, same instrument used in Twin Otter, uh, we found that low flying was necessary um, and I can go into it. People say the losses in the air are nothing. Well, that's nothing to do with the problem we had. So we flew at 30 feet off the ground for, I don't know, between one and 200 hours. And, uh, of course, we uh, were both very keen on watching where we were going. And I said to the pilot once, if I see you're heading for the surface, what do I do? And he said, pull up, hard. <laughs> quite right, quite right. That's why we're still alive. That was pilot Giles Kershaw. Um, there's our shadow on big crevasses. Um, we flew an awful long way like this. And uh, over flat snow, it's more difficult. I mean, this is easy because you've got topography to look at. Uh, when I was flying uh, from the right-hand seat... Uh, I uh, was watching, and if this shadow came in towards us, I was too low. If it went away, I was too high. Nowadays, the radars are much better, and you don't have to fly at 30 feet. It was fun, but uh, 
extreme concentration for hours on end uh, for self-preservation. Um, this is uh, Gary Studd, who's now a, a um, Airbus pilot flying to the Antarctic, um, flying to the South Pole uh, with an air almanac, a slide rule, a sun compass, um, and the, the Bass pilots are all one, one pilot. I mean, they've got Dash 7 now with two pilots, but these are all one pilot. And uh, to get to the South Pole and uh, say you thought you were there and you didn't know where you are, it would be very embarrassing for a professional pilot. So he was careful to take uh, some uh, sun angles every uh, 10 minutes to make damn sure that came up straight ahead. There are problems. This was tied down, both wings, tail and nose, uh, on sunken fuel drums, but you just snapped the alpine ropes and flipped over on the back. Luckily nobody was near at the time, but that's, uh, I don't know, three or four million pounds, aren't they? Um, we took it to pieces and shipped it home and it was put together again, uh, so I don't know about that. I can't read the number on that one, but uh, we we did repair one that had had this little uh, mishap. And this is a most peculiar aircraft. There was only one ever built, um, and uh, it never got a license for passengers. It was experimental, and uh, the chap who owned it lived in Santa Barbara, California, and. Uh, the pilot of a newly minted commercial aviation company uh, taking mostly mountaineers to the Antarctic heard of this and came and saw it and said, this is just the thing uh, for me to take. It's got three turbine engines instead of two piston engines, three PT-6. Um, and uh, it was uh, an amazing success. Uh, but uh, it never got a license for the third engine uh, and eventually burned up on the ground with nobody near it. No, I don't know why. Chris Bonington, uh, um, a British mountaineer, uh, Giles Kershaw, the pilot, he never dressed properly for the Antarctic. He was always in blue jeans. Um, well, they, he was the only pilot they trusted, the only trusted to fly it. He flew it up afterwards on the Arctic Ocean, landing on pack ice, which needs very good judgment because your flow, ice flow comes to an end and the owner wants, your, wants his airplane back again. Um, and those are the climbers. Um, that's uh, um, Reinhold Messner, is probably the most famous mountaineer of his day. And that's me, that's Giles Kershaw, or all these are climbers. We uh, we're not too sensitive about uh, uh, all upload. Um, and Giles was a very good cook. And you can see these exhausted people had just come down from the highest mountain in the Antarctic uh, and could now boast that they'd climbed the highest mountain in all seven continents. Beef steaks for dinner. Uh, it was, uh, I suppose, minus 25 degrees at the time. And uh, mountaineers heard that uh, in uh, Queen Maudland, where I had been my first expedition, were magnificent unclimbed peaks. 
And so they um, chartered a Hercules from South Africa and uh, were uh, going to land on bare ice. So they invited me to sit on the jump seat between the pilots. I've been in a number of proving flights because they said, is the ice strong enough? Will we sink in? And I said, no, no, no. If you land where I tell you, you'll be all right. Uh, well, they always have been uh, but uh, in mad Norwegians camped halfway up here. Mountaineering is not my sport, but they paid good money for it. Um, and this is uh, uh, something n- not to do. Um, <laughs> now, that's what nice runway looks like. Um, I um, was brought in with this because I was flying along with the Super Constellation board in the right-hand seat. I said, what would you do if McMurray was socked in when we came back? And he said, my instructions are to land the super constellation, wheels up on the Ross Ice Shelf, right off the aircraft, but hopefully not right off the people inside. You just slide along and step out. I said, they're stupid. And uh, there are lots of bare ice I could take to you in the Transantarctic Mountains to land on wheels. He said, well, I'm a Navy pilot and my orders is orders and I would do as I was told. Uh, so I said to everybody in the world, that's stupid, um, that we must use uh, wheeled transport aircraft for going wherever there is a runway like this. And these little bumps are about this high. So on landing, you feel a high frequency vibration, but it doesn't do any harm even to a twin otter or bigger aircraft, I just tell them not to use the brakes because there might be serious consequences. Um, this is the first landing we ever did on an ice field to prove it and survey it. That's uh, uh, Giles Kershaw in the pilot seat, keeping both engines running because um, we were a long way from home, and uh, me on the left and a Chilean Air Force uh, pilot there. We have very good relations with the Chilean Air Force and have had for many years. Um, and uh, so they then brought me back to survey it with an engineer's level and four meter staff. I measured uh, flat runway for f- more than four kilometers and um, wrote a report, uh, copied it to the Chilean Air Force out of courtesy, but then uh, went home and uh, this company, uh, it was called Adventure Network at the time, phoned me up and said, we've bought a, we've bought a DC-4, a four-engine airliner. I said, oh, yes, yes. They said, will you come with us? <laughs> and so uh, I didn't refuse. And again, I sat in the jump seat. I said, I'm not going to tell you how to fly your airplane, but if you're about to land in the wrong place, I'm going to pipe up very loudly. And they landed in the right place. Um, we lived, just the two of us, while we were doing the survey in this miserable, windy place. Um, well, it is uh, irrelevant, thank goodness. Um, I, I, I'm not one to bring my flags, but somebody, <laughs> uh, somebody had that. I mean, I'm international, uh, is my thing. Um, this was uh, 11 hours, 40 minutes from Punta Arenas, Chile. The U.S. ambassador had been told by Washington to try to stop us on the grounds that we were mad adventurers, we're bound to crash, 
and they were the only people who would be able to come pick up the pieces. Luckily, I had met the head of the Chilean Air Force the season before, and we got on like a house on fire. And uh, I said, we're going to come back. And when the U.S. ambassador said, please stop these people, uh, he said, get lost in polite diplomatic terms. And off we went. Um, and uh, it was fine. We had four tons of cargo. And these poor wretched uh, aircrew had to uh, pump fuel from the extra fuel in the cabin into the wing tanks. It was blowing 30 knots. Uh, it was not nice, but nothing wrong with the surface for landing on. Um, yeah, you can see the wind is blowing something horrible. Um, and uh, the chap is still refueling the wing tanks. Uh, and this is, uh, this is gasoline. Uh, have gas all over your sleeves and everything. Not my idea of a cup of tea. Um, now, the uh, gentleman who took this photograph is sitting in the back of this room. And uh, when you go to the main base of McMurdo these days, you fly in this U.S. Air Force um, C-17 uh, landing on sea ice. This is on sea ice, isn't it? Exactly. On sea ice. On sea ice, 10 to 15 thick. Uh, that is a floating winter-only ice. In other words, your airfield goes out, drifts away to sea late in the summer. And so uh, it's quite exciting for pilots who've never landed uh, uh, on ice. They they inquire whether it's going to break under them. I don't think it ever ever has. Uh, and that's combined passenger and cargo, enormous aircraft, really colossal, but very successful. The American National Science Foundation has to pay the Air Force for hiring these, but um, they do a wonderful job. It costs them money. Um, this is a, a Hercules. Uh, LC-130 is the ski variety taking off, and they're using eight JATO rockets, jet-assisted takeoff. They're, in fact, solid-fuel rockets uh, to get off the ground. Um, and uh, when I was young, people called... Uh, a propeller and air screw, and you can see it's screwing your way through the sky there. Um, then I was invited down in 1978 to uh, help measure the rate of movement of the largest glacier in the Transantarctic Mountains, Bird Glass, and named after the uh, uh, American Admiral, which was fun. Um, and uh, that's the one the mountaineers climbed. A British Antarctic Survey we're not a, um, then we had visitors from uh, Germany, and uh, one of these two aircraft was the first war casualty in the history of Antarctic aviation. Uh, they were routing home from the Antarctic Peninsula through South America, Recife, Dakar, and up the coast. And they were shot. One was shot down by Polisario guerrillas and killed all five people on board. So we've had. Uh, war casualties. Uh, they also one season brought down this uh, one to eight, uh, which they never brought down again. The uh, two to eight was uh, interesting because it cost two British test pilots their lives. 
doing certification in this country, they had a runaway elevator trim tab or stuck elevator trim tab, and the two of them could not hold it. Went straight in, expensive. This is uh, Giles Kershaw flying the DC-4. Uh, we had this extra fuel um, because it's a long way. I mean, we had more than 24 hours fuel on board in taking off from um, Punta Arenas, Chile, including a four-ton uh, cargo. And so it, it was... Um, you were lucky to find pilots willing to do this. We, it was an Air Force runway, a very long runway, and we cleared the far end perimeter fence by about 40 feet, I think. And we went further south uh, to fi find bear ice and had two twin otters um, camping. And I said, knowing about getting blown away in windy places, I said, please, please, I don't want these both to be blown away in the same storm. Would you please take one away? Um, and uh, so they did. They took it out and parked it out here because there the were vortices coming off the mountain and uh, they gradually petered out as you went further out but in fact we were not not blown away um, then that's the South African Hercules with uh, uh, Giles Kershaw's wife was managing director at the time after he died and uh, we took off from Cape Town again none of them had ever been to the Antarctic nor landed on ice so they put me in a jump seat and I gave standard procedure. I said, uh, I will only say anything if you're about to land in the wrong place. Um, there we are, and there are these mountains that uh, uh, cause the mountaineers to have an orgasm. <laughs> um, then I worked for the Americans looking for bare ice fields for them, this is at the South Pole. And of course, I'd never worked with women in the Antarctic. Um, British Antarctic Survey didn't allow women until recently. So naturally, I got hold of uh, uh, the nearest women. But to see them at the South Pole was quite exciting for me. Um, three campers to work for Charles for a few days surveying blue ice fields and generally freezing your butt off in high winds. Uh, and I did this three times and the chart was fill, filled with volunteers every, every time. So these people living for a year with only the sight of snow all wanted to see mountains. So I was able to show them some. That's inside the geodesic dome. Two-story buildings. They were all living in there, wintering in there, in these two-story buildings. Um, and uh, we went out in a twin otter which I had asked for exclusively. Um, and uh, here's one of the flat bits of ice that I was surveying. And we found a meteorite. Now, that's very exciting, uh, meteorites, because a lot of them have been found in the Antarctic, because on soil here, they just bury themselves straight away and never see them. On snow, they bury themselves straight away. So to find one on ice was quite exciting and it actually rated a uh, scientific paper in the journal Meteoritics uh, because it was unique. Um, well, these are self-explanatory. I got them to build a, 
a loop because there are frightful winds here and really performing in a wind up your backside is no fun. So South Pole built a... That's what Twin Otter looks like. Uh, wheels down, skis up. Uh, it was a hell of a job to get them to land a Hercules wheels down because they all said, oh, in the Antarctic we always land on skis. Well, eventually they were made to do this. And Antarctic Survey now has a Twin Otter and a hard runway. hard runway is long enough for, for uh, Dash 7, but uh, not for anything bigger. We were visited by a Soviet helicopter, uh, Mi-8, um, and then after retiring, uh, everybody in my profession is asked to give lectures on cruise ships for tourists. There are some of them in the audience tonight. Um, and uh, you're taken ashore in this thing um, without a tail rotor um, and uh, the noisiest helicopter I've ever been in. And if you don't crouch down, you're blown down the hill in a big way. Um, this is the Airbus flown from uh, Tasmania to the Antarctic. This is a, um, not bare ice, but compacted snow runway on bare ice. And uh, it works fine, apparently. Um, and so we're getting more and more standard aircraft. Uh, they tried this uh, Spanish-built uh, thing that carried a bit more than the Twin Otter, but it was not successful. Um, then since retiring, I was invited to a lecture on North Pole trip, and my wife came along with me. There she is, waving. Uh, and this is a strange American flag on the bows of a Russian nuclear-powered icebreaker, but that's a long story. Um, then again, I was sitting at my desk, and a telephone call from... Boscom down said, would I go to Greenland in the RAF Comet? Uh, well, I'm not accustomed to saying no. Um, and they wanted somebody who could um, tell them what kind of ice they were flying over. They were doing trials for new kind of altimeters. And uh, that was the crew. And that's me, smartly dressed halfway, halfway up there. Uh, and we did uh, 26 hours or something. And some of the time I sat in the right-hand seat, and uh, uh, once they said, would you, would you like to have a go? And I, <laughs> I didn't have to be asked twice. He said, hold it at 500 feet, which I did. And he said, now you can take come down to 200 feet. This is 200 feet above the ice at um, jet airliner speeds. It was perhaps the greatest thrill of my life. Um, there are professional pilots in the audience, and I doubt if they'd uh, flown it over much terrain at 200 feet. Um, and this is the route that the tourists now take to the South Pole. Put it in as Chile to uh, Ice Runway there and using a Illusion 76TD, Tiojole Darni, heavy lift, long range, um, for taking people, paying tourists. And that's the runway that we have. Uh, very long, very smooth. Again, the only thing I say to them is, please don't put on the brakes. Um, British Antarctic Survey is using them now to ship material down. This is a standard shipping container for their drilling program, uh, which they're going to do next season. Uh, when we started with commercial 
operations, the British shunned me. They said, oh, you mustn't do that. We're government only in the Antarctic. Well, they're now using a commercial operator. Um, we've visited by... Basler is a turbo conversion of the DC-3. That's what the panel looks like. I'm sure there's some old DC-3 pilots in the, in the room, and the only thing you would recognize is the split windscreen here. Everything else has changed. Um, we've, we're flying tourists to the last degree, uh, where the manhole, the last degree to the South Pole, what Shackleton didn't do. So we dropped them off at 89, and there they are, starting for the last degree to go to. They pay big money for this. I mean, they're mad, but they pay, <laughs> pay big money for it. And uh, then having got rid of them, I was uh, asked if I'd like stick time to the South Pole, the last degree. I said, yes, please. And that was to, to remind the Americans that we were not the first to get there. Satellite photos, I've been using satellite images and this is what we've learned from satellite images now. Ice streams, well ice streams weren't even defined when I began. I published the first definition um, and the Americans asked me to write a book about satellite pictures, which I did, uh, and then the US Army asked me to write a book about landing on bare ice, which I did. And then I wrote my own four books, which are sitting here. Um, and then I, I got a telephone call from Houston, Texas, <laughs> saying, this is uh, NASA. Would I come and discuss traveling on Mars with them? Uh, I said, I've I never been there. <laughs> I'm so off, often asked to advise on places I have been. <clears throat> and I've been there twice now for conferences. And this is there latest space suit with me inside. Um, and this is perhaps one of the most exciting things of my life, that this is a cross-section of the North Polarized Cap of Mars. Nothing to do with me, but very much the same instrument that we had started using in 1966, radar sounding. This time, a hundred million miles away, from an orbiting spacecraft. For me, it's thrilling. I'll stop there. Thank you. Thank you, Charles, for an absolutely wonderful story taking us through these sort of unbelievable activities. It's been terrific. Thank you so much. Now, Charles has agreed to answer questions. Um, if we could have a microphone, please. Good evening. Thank you. Uh, my name's Simon Rose. Um, I, I'm intrigued to know what um, sunglasses you wore for flying. I'm an optometrist, and I'm interested in, in, in this sort of thing. Well, very darkest Ray-Ban that you can't buy in shops, but the Americans uh, get them specially made for the Antarctic program. Um, I've had to wear two of those very dense uh, ones for reflection off the snow sometimes. But then I looked out of the window uh, once and they ripped off. That was one. So there were times that they, they just didn't work and you had to use other methods? No, they worked. Right. They okay. worked. But Thanks. I mean, 
heading into the sun once I use two thicknesses, uh, but normally one, only one. Thank you. Ian McCoubray, thank you for a fascinating talk. I hadn't realised there was quite so much aviation going on down there. Is there any form of air traffic control or notification or anything like that? No, because we're talking about a continent uh, 2,000 miles wide and uh, your chance of running into somebody are very small. The Americans fly one route from the coast to the South Pole. They no doubt uh, obey the normal rules, uh, uh, sector rules, and we we don't, but we agree that South Pole at one height and northbound another. So we take sensible precautions. But no, uh, there's no international authority because the nature of the Antarctic is that we all run our own affairs. Thanks for a fascinating lecture. Um, we have lots of... Alastair Christie, I'm from the Farnborough branch of the Royal Aeronautical Society. Uh, there's lots of publicity at the moment about the ice in the Arctic beginning to disappear. Is there the same problem in the Antarctic, or is it so vast and thick that there's hardly any change? Um, the, the there's area? very little change. I uh, went to the North Pole. I gave myself the job of recording the thickness of the ice above us from that nuclear submarine, and the average then was three meters. Ten years later, it was two meters. Now it's even thinner. So these predictions of ice-free summers in the Arctic Ocean. They're very real. But in the Antarctic, we're talking about an average uh, thickness of uh, 2,500 metres. That'll take some time to melt. I won't be around. Thank you very much for a very interesting lecture. Um, is a myth that when you fly over, um, fly over the Antarctic, fly over penguins, um, you aren't allowed to fly too low because the penguins will fall over. Is that true? That's a myth. That's a myth. <laughs> a, a picturesque myth. But we do have strict rules about not flying over penguin rookeries because you scared them. Hello, uh, Chef Michel. Um, what is the difference between an ice stream and a glacier? An ice stream is defined as part of an ice sheet moving faster and not necessarily in the same direction as the ice surrounding it. In other words, it is uh, a valley glacier in a subglacial valley, but uh, it's just beating its way through part of the ice sheet. So the only thing you see at the edges is lots of crevasses because it's moving faster uh, than the rest of the ice sheet. That is an ice stream. Uh, thanks very much. Um, Dave Tuskis. Uh, I used to be one of those chaps who looked at rocks, who you had great respect for earlier. Um, I wonder if you can um, uh, resolve uh, an old story that a statistician at the British Antarctic Survey used to wind me up with when we had a beer from time to time, which was that um, the Antarctic uh, continent is actually two continents joined together. I wonder if you can put that one to rest. Um, no, but there is a low bit in the middle, and the whole thing is covered by ice dome now, but there is a low bedrock uh, area uh, in between. But it would be, yeah, it would be a group of islands if you took the ice away totally. Don't forget the sea level would then rise and you'd have uh, fewer islands.
Um, no, it's very, very deep. I mean, it, it's always staggered us, um, although we did it for years, and just how thick the ice is. If you wait a hundred thousand years, it may go for a bit and then come back. But I won't be around. I could have a second question. There are many photographs of an active volcano quite close to uh, Scott's uh, starting point. Is there a lot of uh, volcanic activity uh, recorded in the Antarctic? No, that's the uh, only live one. There was one on an offshore island that uh, erupted a few years ago. But that Mount Erebus is the mountain that the DC-10 flew into. Um, because they'd been given two different flight plans. I won't go into that because it's, uh, it's, uh, New Zealanders are still arguing about it. The, um, the photo you showed us last, um, of, of the Mars probe, um, do you think that, uh, what your, your knowledge of what might happen in the future, if we, if we are drilling into our own deep lakes and we find certain organisms there, um, what are the chances of finding organisms buried in these lakes in the north of uh, north parts of Mars? You're way beyond my competence. <laughs> I haven't a clue. But let's find life on Mars first, where they are going and looking seriously for it. I mean, I volunteered to go to Mars. They said you were too old. Some years ago, there was um, a lot of controversy about uh, drilling down to the freshwater lakes in Antarctic. I understand from the lecture tonight that actually nations are drilling down. Has there been a change in, in uh, opinion about whether contamination from the surface would get into these lakes and no. perhaps destroy any uh, discoveries? That's a good point, and there have been international conferences about it. So they're being very, very clean. The Russians have got through now, after several international conferences with people uh, objecting, broken through, but with a, a, a low pressure in the drill hole, which has to be filled with hydrocarbons. So as soon as they got through, the lake water came up, uh, instead of the uh, filling stuff going down. And they let it freeze. And what they're going to do now is uh, take sampling through that uh, by a hot water sampler that uh, melts and then freezes above the instrument. So they're never going to actually open that hole. And is that the same technique that the British survey is going to use? Uh, they're using hot water. Uh, to drill through, um, and uh, they do have samplers, and I haven't seen them, uh, but uh, that's what they want to do, is sample the water. And again, suck the water up and yes. not drop anything. Yes. Uh, Dave Crosby, you seem to have had a very rich and varied career. I wonder, do you have any regrets, and if you were given the chance, is there anything that you would definitely do again? I would have done exactly the same. It's a matter of taking opportunities, but uh, no, I've had a wonderful life. I can't imagine anything better. Tremendous privileges, doing things that other people have not been able to do, and I'm sure many small boys dream of doing things like this. Uh, so I've been very lucky.
Joan Cox. Am I right in thinking that at one point in your adventurous life, you confirmed the thickness of the Arctic uh, ice by sailing under the ice shelf in a submarine and surfacing, breaking through at the North Pole? Yes. Uh, they had three uh, upward-looking echo sounders, and they weren't very interested, but I was. So every time the paper, it was an old-fashioned paper recorder, every time paper ran out, I took it off and put in, a, put a clean one, and wrote the times, uh, time marks on them. And at the end of the voyage, uh, uh, I said I'd like to take these back to Cambridge. Uh, and uh, of course, everything is very secret on a submarine. Um, and uh, the uh, skipper was a nice chap. He said, "Well, in the Royal Navy." Uh, the rule is that if there's something for which we do not already have a classification, um, a secret classification, it's up to the captain uh, to decide. And so I looked expectantly, and he said, I have decided, you can take them home. <laughs> so I put them all in a mail bag, and we've published several papers on analyzing these these things. Now everybody, every submarine going under measures ice thickness. That's why we're able to say it's getting thinner and thinner. And, uh, again, they gave me some stick stick time. Uh, you, ha you have a yoke and you can go up and down just like an airplane. Um, uh, and uh, again, uh, watching like hawks to see what I did. Uh, <laughs> I think we'd better call this a day now. Um, Charles, thank you for an absolutely wonderful talk. Um, we don't have many in this lecture theatre that go from the, the depths of the ocean to Mars, <laughs> to um, both the poles. Um, I just can't imagine anyone having such a wonderful story to tell and telling it as well as you have. And thank you so much for coming here this evening and giving us such a, a superb experience. Will you join me? Thank you. Thank you. Uh,